Hi, my name is Sharon Shimanova, and this is Chai Podcast. Ladies and gentle humans, I am here with the one, the only, Ruben Shimanov, Uzbekistan-born, Seattle-raised, an educator, a historian, a social innovator, a community builder. The list of organizations that he has been a part of is endless, from the American Sephardi Federation to JDC Entwine to One Table to Moisha House. Ruben has served also as the Director of Community Engagement and Education at Queens College Hillel. He is the founding executive director of the Sephardic Mizrahi Queer Network, SMQN, that builds a supportive community for LGBTQ plus Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews. And I would like to think that he is a dear friend of mine. Welcome, Ruben. How are you feeling? How are we feeling? A little bit under the weather, so my voice is a bit more uh, hoarse right now, but a bit more <laughs> smoldering, I guess. We'll, we'll get through it. I'm so excited to be here and uh, so excited for what you are bringing to the Bukharian community. So thank you. I'm actually really excited for this episode, to be honest with you. I think this is going to be gold, it's like pure gold. So let's just hop, let's hop right into it. Okay. A lot of what I talk about on this show is deeply rooted in personal identity. Of course, I want to discuss firstly, the unique relationship that you have with your Baharian cultural identity. I think specifically because of your lack of proximity to New York city. Do you think that growing up in Seattle and coming to New York to see family every now and then has kind of allowed you to have a different appreciation for the Baharian community. For sure. I would argue that we are all a product of our upbringing, our environment. You know, there's that age old question between nature and nurture and, and both things play a role. But in terms of our experiences growing up, those play a really important role in how we view the world and how we view ourselves and our connection to other communities and, and to the communities that, that we are part of. And so to understand my Bukharian identity, my Bukharian Jewish identity, and to better kind of contextualize the work that I have done in the Sephardi Mizrahi world, in the LGBTQ world, in the interfaith world, to understand all of that, it is important to talk a little bit about my background, my upbringing. And so, as you mentioned in that really nice <laughs> introduction <laughs> that kind of made me blush. So I was born in, in Tashkent in Uzbekistan, and we have yet to figure out if we are related. Yes, yes. The Shimonov, the Shimonov last name strikes again. We are unsure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And we came to the States when I was six and a half years old in 1993. So a couple of years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a couple of years after the establishment of the independent Republic of Uzbekistan. A very tumultuous time, a very uncertain right. time, and a time when the bulk of our community was, was coming to the U.S. and to Israel. So that's the first important part of my story, that even though I was quite young when we left, my identity as an immigrant and as a refugee, as uh, we came as refugees seeking asylum, right? That part of, of, of my story, the beginning of my story has continued to inform so much of what I do and how I see the world. And so while I was quite young when we, when we left Uzbekistan, 
at six and a half, you have memories. There, you have a sense of already a, a certain sense of self, and you can recall moments in your life. And I definitely have that. I have these snapshots, if you will, these moments, these vignettes of my first, you know, six and a half, seven years. How much of it is, you know, exactly accurate? How much of it right. is? Well, first of all, it's all through the lens of a of a little, you know, a little child, right? Yeah. And so that's, it's going to be kind of colored through that prism of the kind of the world that I saw as a little kid. So all of that is, is you know, is the reality that uh, it, it all needs to be acknowledged that these memories are not by any means, you know, these perfect snapshots. I would argue no memories are, but especially for, for a person that young. Having said that, they're still there and they have left a lasting imprint on me. So for example, I don't talk too much about this actually, so this is interesting, but I have pretty vivid memories of the apartment, the the, the, the Soviet like concrete building apartment that my mom, my father, may he rest in peace, my sister and my mom uh, lived in, in Chilanzar. It's a, it's a neighborhood in, in Tashkent. And uh, there's so many things I can say about, you know, the the kind of sense memories of the apartment. Uh, my sister playing piano, classic. She was classically trained. Or the walls that were painted beautifully by my father. It was like with airbrush painted with these beautiful designs. He did a lot of, he was a, a real handy person, as was my mom. I mean, they were, I feel like in the Soviet Union, you had to be a plumber. You had to be a, you know, a contractor. A uh, so you know you need to know how to sew. You didn't have have a choice, yeah. Yeah, you did it all, and you did it all amazingly. I can't, I can barely put a nail in the wall without like you know (laughs) bending it or something. So it's very you know different. Look at my mom, and she is like you know jack of all trades. It's it's amazing. So so I remember um, and other things just you know in the apartment, the people that that would come over, and often there would be these blackouts because like the, the the electricity would go off, and then. We would have candles and then our neighbors would come and we would all kind of huddle together. I remember in the summertime, a random memory, you know, it was hot, so we might leave the windows open, but there were a lot of bats <laughs> in Tashkent. And so there were a few times where like bats flew into the apartment. Oh Weird, random things, but I remember that. So all that's to say that those six years, while they were, again, a small part of my life in a part of the world that is deeply rooted and, and, and is just uh, um, soaked with the the, the history of our people. So again, it's not like random six years in Kansas or something, right? So yeah. it's going to leave another imprint on me. On top of the, all of that, later, I, I came to really appreciate the, um, yeah, inst- I guess instability of the time in which we lived and the time in which I was born. I, I mean, again, it's, it's something that I obviously, I mean, I don't think I was able to really understand fully when I was a child, but it must have played a role in those six years. And the way I remember it playing a role was actually in these tiny, again, little vignettes. So just one little example of kind of the, 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 the ways in which things were really up in the air. The currency would like change like every other month. It felt like every other week or every other month, the bills were changing, right? It was just like different. And so I remember having like 100 Zoom, 200 Zoom to just play with like Monopoly money because <laughs> it meant nothing. First of all, because it actually wasn't worth a lot. But on top of it not being worth a lot, it was ultimately worth nothing because then a different version of the Zoom would come out. And so that money was now literally like Monopoly money you could just, you know, play with. And I didn't, for me, it was just kind of fun. I didn't realize that what that meant is that there is deep instability economically. 
right? And then this country, like other countries in the region, were trying to figure out like, what do we do now, right? But the whole idea, Sharon, with what, with what, I'm, with what I've been saying is that those formative, those years, those six and a half years have played a very important role, have played a continuous role in how I see myself. My connection, my identity as an immigrant is, is quite strong. For a long time, I tried to, you know, Ooh, I've tried to, I've tried to sweep that under the carpet and and be as American, whatever that means, as you know, as as the next person. And with time, I realized like, no, first of all, I can't escape it, nor should I. It's a really beautiful part of who I am, and I feel that that much more strongly because of the fact that you know my passport will always say Uzbekistan. So those little things like remind me of my immigrant past and continued kind of popping up at different stages in my life, just when I thought, okay. I've, I've become a full American now. There would be these little reminders that, no, I'm never fully that. But I'm not saying it in like a tragic way anymore. Well, first and foremost, just by everything that you've just shared, it's very evident that your first six years, those formative years, were built on a foundation that was pretty shaky, right? You underwent, just physically, you were present during so many different political and social changes in the space that you were growing up. You experienced that, and then simultaneously shortly thereafter you just physically were per you partook in that kind of shift to a completely different continent moving mm. to a totally new space where you didn't speak the language your family had no idea what was going on and then on top of that you're struggling with being a six seven year old infant trying to feel that they fit in in an american oh society gosh, when you're very clearly an immigrant it's it's a mess it's a mess no you you get it and thank you for actually articulating it that way and it took me uh, you know therapy later on in my life to realize that yeah the, the, the kind of the beginning of my life was built on something very shaky and was uh, unstable and by the way i mean and i'm a little kid i mean i was um I only saw half of what, let's say, my mom saw. My mom was just a wonder woman. I mean, and she, you know, doesn't talk about that, you know, the trauma and instability, meaning not she doesn't talk about it, but she refuses to kind of, you know, be she, you know, a victim of it. But what I'm trying to, you know, what I've learned from therapy, what I try to tell us to mom is that it's not about being a victim. It's just about acknowledging that that trauma, that instability was there. And it's not a coincidence then that most of my life, I've, I've been, you know, deeply seeking stability and that the moments when I'm most anxious and, um, oh, just, uh, yeah, most uneasy is when, at, to say the least, is when I don't feel that security, that safety, that stability. But it all started from, exactly, in Uzbekistan, Soviet Union slash Uzbekistan, then stability there. Then, as you said, moving halfway across the world, uh, first to, to New York, that's where we live for a year and a half my mom always saw new york as a means to an end as kind of a stepping stone and then to seattle which by the way is literally halfway across the world if you Tashkent on a globe <laughs> and you trace your finger on the uh, longitude latitude one of those lines and you go you know past the arctic halfway across the world it's like if you would drill that is is seattle and so quite literally by age nine I was living halfway across the world from where I was born, halfway across the world from where we had centuries, if not millennia, of our deeply rooted Jewish, Judeo-Persian Jewish history, starting life like doubly in you, you know, first a kind of sort of in you in the New Republic of Uzbekistan, Tripoli in you, if the, uh, then in New York, 
and then in in Seattle. That is a lot of destabiliz destabilization. <laughs> On top of that, I grew up in a single parent household. I mean, in Tashkent, my mom, my dad, my sister and I lived together. But even then, my father was not always as present. I grew up with my mom being my mom, my dad, my everything. Do you ever think about how it's really interesting that the older generation, like our parents, they experienced that entire shift similarly to the way that your generation of people who were infants and kind of ex experienced that immigration, but they experienced it as like grown ass adults, like in their twenties, in their thirties, they lived through that change. They felt that the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, they felt physically. And I'm sure that like in terms of their careers, in terms of their jobs, their housing situations, all of that shifted immediately. That instability for, for a lot of people who are in your generation, it's like, oh, well, I'm playing with monopoly money. But for them, they're like, how do I make things work with this monopoly money? You know what I mean? It's, but it's what I'm trying to get at is that it's like, for a lot of those people, what I notice is that they don't really like to talk about it, just like you mentioned, and they don't really like to participate in like doing that hard work of really getting into it because I think the fear is that they don't want it to define them they don't want mm. that to be like the only part of their identity that there are these like immigrants and that's it I feel like the entire purpose of this trans transition to coming into the U.S. is to become more than that right is to become more than just like oh I'm an immigrant I want to actually succeed in this country the American yeah. dream and all that Share, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm just snapping to what you're saying. 100%. I think there is, it's a, a bittersweet story and kind of a, uh, I don't know, maybe ambivalent story, what, 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 we're, what we're painting here. Because on the one hand, you are, yeah, we're talking about, um, again, our parents' generation, even our, our grandparents, uh, a generation of folks who were just moving forward. Right, they were moving forward. They were doing what needed to be done. There was a lot of strength and bravery and determination and just endurance, right, to move yeah. forward. And there's something really beautiful and commendable about that. And this actually connects us, uh, I think, to other immigrant communities who have had those experiences. I've and I've always, by the way, I mean, fast forward a little bit later. I've I always felt this connection to other immigrant children and other uh, immigrants and, and 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 for a long time I couldn't really articulate why and then I realized it's not it's because we got each other on that level and we had you know similar experiences even if they were in different places but of the sacrifices our parents had to make also similar experiences of let's say when I was was you know then making friends especially I would say in college folks like me who were what we call 1.5 generation right kind of neither here nor there for the, long for the longest time, I thought erroneously, the first generation is the first one to be born here. The first generation is the first one to just be in the new country, right? And second generation are the folks that are born here. Uh, but then what? how do you refer to then those of us who were quite young, right? So we're a little bit closer to the second generation, but not fully. So this term actually emerged in, in the literature, in sociology, in uh, immigrant study, immigration studies, the 1.5 generation. Those of us who are kind of in this liminal space which means either both both here and there or neither here nor there, right? If you can see half empty or half full, often I think it's actually the neither here nor there, which makes it then difficult and leads to kind of these identity crises. And, you know, growing up, I didn't have that language, 1.5 generation. I just knew I'm 
sort of American or trying to be, but not, you know, I'm not like some of my other cousins who were born here. Definitely not like my parents or even like my older sister who was like 12 when we came, right? That's all I was going to say. That's all I'm going to say about that. But back to this kind of ambivalent, uh, beautiful and tragic story of like our parents' generation. So on the one hand, they are determined, they're moving forward and they don't want to be seen as, you know, as victims, not even just victims, they don't want to be seen as like a product of that trauma and all that difficulty, right? And that's why I think many of them also, you know, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't talk about it, right? They want to, they wanted to transcend that as they're creating new lives for themselves. They want to uh, not be defined by that. And that's really, that's powerful and inspiring and beautiful. At the same time, when we take that to the extreme, then we are uh, masking and sweeping under the carpet truly troubling and traumatic and difficult episodes. And that's gonna then come out in other ways. It can't not come out, right? So if you're actually not in touch with how you're feeling or you're not expressing it or you're not communicating or or you're not, you know, seeing a therapist or, I don't know, chat, chatting, you know, with your, with your friends about it in a really like, you know, deeper way, then it will rear its ugly head in other ways. And I think we are holding a lot of that trauma in our community without addressing it. And I don't think it means, you know, I, you know, you bring this up to some folks, even some folks our age who've internalized some of this, like, oh, you know, talking about it it's like for babies or whatever there's also a lot of like you know gender shit to it like oh well mm-hmm. that's not like the ma- male thing to yeah. do but also women in our family would say well it's just it's it's just again it's it's the weak thing to do i mean so you still and, and i hear this even among younger uh, full, uh people in our community and what i tell them is no it's not making you any weaker it's not you know you know the liberal agenda or whatever to do that <laughs> this is this is how we heal and so to discuss it, to talk about it, to unpack it will only make us stronger. And so while I deeply honor and celebrate the strength and the resilience of our community, particularly back to your question of our parents who were just like, you know, who, who lived through this stuff. Again, like for me, I'm seeing it through the lens of a child, which has its own pluses and, and minuses or, 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 you know, its own benefits because some of the stuff I didn't feel. It also has some of, you know, its own unique kind of traumas that adults might not have because they have more of the wherewithal and the understanding and the maturity to process some things right so but still uh, it's i would never compare my experience as a six-year-old to the stuff that my mom or my grandparents you know went through moving here and but here i am talking all about it processing it whereas that generation that really needs to do it more isn't so i guess what i'm saying is that while i admire and celebrate their perseverance and and the resilience i celebrate that resilience having said that i think we have a lot more a lot more to unpack and a lot of, you know we need to you know uncover that buharian carpet <laughs> our, our rug <laughs> now i'm using imagery from our own <laughs> open it up literally and see all of the dust or the things that we've swept under that because i think some of that perseverance and and moving forward which was so important it was existential it was out of necessity yeah. it was urgent but some of that came at the price of processing right it is up to us the the responsibility I really think is upon the younger generation, the 1.5, the second generation, 
to start opening up those conversations. Yeah. Why? When we look at generation, uh, the, the, the generations that undergo, that go through these vicissitudes, these, these traumatic moments, it is a human phenomenon, psychological, sociological way of coping and adapting not to speak about it. Or you'll just go crazy and you'll, you'll break down. Right. And so, but often that, that then is taken to the extreme of not speaking about it ever. And then again, it then manifests in other unhealthy uh, uh, ways. And what then happens is often it's the next generation that starts because there's enough of that distance that they have the ability, the psychological ability, and the, um, also often the social and economical cap economic capital. Right, because we are we often are have more privilege than than our parents who really were working a bajillion jobs trying to make ends meet. Right, our grandparents were taking care of us while they were you know just building some kind of foundation. So they, they didn't have the time, they didn't have the social capital, the privilege to sit around and think about these things. Honestly, right, we have a bit more of that, and and that's an amazing blessing and privilege that we have to be able to kind of think about it, process it. Um, and have the the language also through maybe some of the you know humanities courses that we've taken whatever we we have all that all those faculties we have all those abilities now um, and we have that distance and so it's not surprising that what often happens is that second and third generation is the one that wants to find out more that does the research academically or just in the you know in the community uh, documents the oral histories right and so it is incumbent upon us we're the ones that need to do that work and to tell the stories of our uh, predecessors, right? And to, and to create that platform for their voices to be heard. They're not gonna do it, many of them not gonna do it themselves because again, they either think, actually many of them think a lot of it's kind of internalized, you know, um, I, I don't know what the word is, but they, they, I've heard people say, who's gonna wanna hear it, Yeah. right? So exactly. it's this internalized uh, xenophobia, no, 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 but it's, it's this uh, minimizing of your own story which is so tragic because everybody wants to hear it. Trust me, I know, I get invited all the time to speak about this. And again, I'm not even, I'm that 1.5 generation. I'm not even the stories my mom could tell, but you would never wanna you know, share them. So first of all, there's that like minimizing of your own story. Secondly, there's this whole idea of what well, we're moving forward. We're not looking in the past, right? We're not gonna be victims of that. We're not gonna be a product of that. We're moving forward and we're, and we're you know, blazing a new trail for us and we're not gonna be defined by that. Again, wonderful, but I think at times it's okay to say, no, let's look back and let's acknowledge this. So they, the product of wanting to move forward, the product of, and uh, saying, who's gonna wanna hear this? And the, I don't have time. Like, I just don't have time for this, right? All of those things have you know, led me to realize that most folks of our parents' generation and grandparents will not be the ones who will, of their own volition, share the story, but they have stories to tell. And that actually, in many ways, seamlessly goes to a little bit that I can say about how my past has informed the work that I do right now. A lot of it, uh, well, as I said before, was informed by my own uh, background, being a Central Asian, Bukharian, Jewish immigrant who uh, was born in Tashkent, but then grew up in Seattle, uh, you know, kind of an arm's length from the, the center of, uh, you know, Bukharla, right? The center yeah. of the Jewish world in Queens, which then actually led me to want to... Uh, it gave me this yearning to always want to know more and learn more because I didn't take it for granted. It's exactly because of the fact that I had that distance that I wanted to connect more. And it's exactly because of that distance and the fact that I didn't see some of the things that maybe uh, my relatives who were in the thick of it saw, it allowed me to do what? It allowed me 
to really make meaning of my Bukharian identity from a young age on my own terms. It wasn't imposed on you. Exactly, exactly. And I think many of my family members in New York didn't have that luxury or that ability or in the same way that I had. So I started seeing my identity as opposed to something that was other, that was less than, inferior, immigrant, Central Asian, unknown, not developed, all of these negative words, right, that I still hear tragically Bukharians mm-hmm. use, yeah. but I understand it comes from their own trauma and from their own toxic experiences, perhaps in the community. But all of those words that even I, in a little way, would internalize in Seattle for other reasons. By the way, for example, the second day of my high school, of, of my freshman year in high school was 9-11. I grew up in the shadow of that. I'm a little bit older than some of them, than, than yeah. right? That painted so much of my teenage years, right? I remember that day, somehow somebody had already known that I was from Uzbekistan. And I remember a kid came to me and said, what did your country do to us? Now, <gasps> if I was a little bit more, more confident in myself, I would say, first of all, you ignorant ass. I think you, you, you're, you're talking about Afghanistan, not Uzbekistan, there's other things. Number one. Number two, even if I were Afghan, you're being super racist and stupid. <laughs> but I, yeah. I didn't have that. You know, I am a new kid in a new high school. Yeah. So all, I just kind of recoiled and didn't talk about, you know, my Central Asian-ness, my Uzbekistani origins. And so for me, it, it emerged in other ways, me wanting to kind of, you know, uh, not not talk about it and see that as less than. But what I'm trying to say is that with time, I realized not only is it not less than, it is more than. Now, later on, just fast forward, when I uh, another part of, salient part of my identity started to become more clear and started to become more, you know, kind of etched out. And it took some time for me to understand this salient part of my identity. And that's my queerness, my connection to the LGBTQ plus experience, my experience as a queer person. That's a whole other story just of how, you know, the, how I ultimately kind of owned that and, and understood uh, this important part of who I am. But let's just say that, first of all, when I came out to my family, they were incredibly supportive and loving. Oh. And that's an important story. And again, I'm speaking from the I. I know we have a lot of homophobia in our community. I know we have a lot of, even as we uh, experience oppression ourselves, these kind of these, these, you know, systems of oppression and discrimination in, in, in our community. And we need to address that. And at the same time, we also have stories like my amazing mother and my Orthodox sister loving me and embracing me from moment, like moment, like the first moment that I told them. And that's part of the story too. And it's important for people in our community to hear that and for people outside the community to hear that, right? That we are not all, you know, haters or whatever. And and so my personal story is one that in terms of me coming out, that includes these wonderful experiences. It also includes family members who don't speak to me anymore and who think that, you know, this is a choice that I made and it's a problematic one and I could, you know, snap out of it. And the fact that I don't is... um, is an issue and it is shameful, right? So that's also part of it, trust me. That's, but I choose to focus on the amazing stories of people like my mom, my sister, my brother-in-law. So what I'm trying to say, that was a little side point, but in coming to kind of, in fully embracing my, my gay, my queer identity and, and, and my connection to the LGBTQ plus world and community, in doing that, I realized that's another bridge that I, am my physical self that's another 
uh, way in which I can take something that has been difficult and has had its moments of trauma and, oh, and it's, you know, ups and downs, but that I can take that and harness it in a really powerful way and use that to connect with others, to build community, to build solidarity, and to really in doing that, enrich myself. First of all, I just went on an emotional roller coaster. I just want you to know, I, there were tears in my eyes at one point. I was about to cry. Then my heart started racing. I'm like, I'm a mess right now. There's just, <laughs> oh my god, that was literally just mic drop. We could, I might as well just stop recording right now because it's just the entire time that you were just speaking. I am just sitting here like I cannot believe that you are here in front of me and that we are doing this because. Oh my God, like just, just like, fuck. I, I can't even like, I cannot even put it into words. The importance of your existence and the importance of the work that you do, your story, your experiences and the effort, it seems effortless, but I know that it takes so much work. And I know that you're constantly working to make other people around you feel that love and that support, feel the mending of the bridges, feel that community and kind of that just like group hug that there are so many people that desperately need. I'm absolutely like, I, I have no words. You've left me speechless. Okay. You've left me absolutely speechless. And I think that it's so beautiful that you were able to experience this part of your life at a distance from that like toxicity, the toxicity and like that people who grew up in forest cells, like people like myself who kind of experienced that like multi-layer trauma and that kind of like just growing up in this space, you were able to experience that from a distance and really love it for what it is meant to be, because it is absolutely true. You know what I mean? Like distance makes the heart grow fonder. We, some distance would be nice. I can imagine that this, some distance would feel right, feel nice right about now, but it's so miraculous to me that despite all of that, you felt that pull on your heartstrings that need to come to New York. You came here and you spent the time you went and actually participated in obviously so many different organizations and nonprofits. But most importantly, you returned to an educational space in order to give back to people who are in those really impressionable years in college, working for, you know, the Queens College Hillel and serving as actually serving as a director for community engagement, which is exactly what this is, why this is so important. And you took all of that love and all of that compassion and you just portrayed it and delivered it to these kids that would have never, would have never ever had the opportunity to experience the presence of somebody like you. And I think that that I am genuinely jealous like I am envious of the fact that when I was in college you weren't there to be kind of like a jumping off point and a mentor and a friend like I I have I honestly I'm oh, Sharon you yeah you uh, thank you for all that you're saying <laughs> enough enough of the <laughs> enough of the uh the compliments I'm gonna like yeah I'm gonna run, run away but but what I what I uh but it but I, I appreciate you mentioning all this particularly because it allows me to speak a little bit about Queens College Hill, a, a big part of, of that community work that I then started doing that was, as I said, informed by my own 
the confidence that I obtained. And by the way, when I say confidence, I don't mean I am confident. Yeah. Right. I, it is a it is a it is a work in progress. I wake up days when I'm like, ah, oh. but I don't know. There was a, there was a, a an understanding that I that I attained. Like I said, uh, starting in high school and then through college, of really leaning into the multiple parts of who I am, the ways in which I can be that bridge, and then. When I realized that it was just so natural to then say, I, I don't want to keep this to myself. This is really exciting and amazing. I want to share this uh, with others. There's so much I can say about uh, our, my time at Queens College Hillel and the growth that I experienced and the beautiful challenge of it. Because really, I was kind of thrown into it. There, there was, there, there was that, that support, but there was also a real blank. It was like blank slate it was like a blank canvas which can be kind of nerve-wracking and scary yeah um especially again for this guy who was coming from seattle yeah i would spend summers in new york in briarwood not really even in you know far Rigo park that's where my grandparents live but i'm kind of an outsider here right and i'm so i'm coming into this and i would commute every day an hour and a half from i was living in the bronx at that point <laughs> I, I had just moved to new york and i wanted my own little place and uh, again, wanting to, a little bit of that distance, that healthy yeah. distance. Uh, but every day I was doing the reverse commute into, nobody was on the train, the reverse commute into Kew Gardens Hills, Queens College Hillel, to work with the younger generation of the Bukharan community, the future movers and shakers, right? And so it was a little bit daunting and you know a little bit anxiety provoking, but all of that was overshadowed by the excitement I felt the way that I was energized by the fact that this is kind of a new, we're in uncharted terrain here. And that means we, I, and we can be creative about what we want to do. And the uncharted terrain, Sharon, was not, I mean, what was already there was this large chunk of the Jewish student body that, body that was Bukharian, and more broadly, Mizrahi, also Persian Jews and, and Georgian Jews and Moroccan. So that was already there. But the uncharted territory was creating an intentional space and vibrant supportive space for these students that had up to this point not really felt like they were they had a platform on campus right they were there they studied they went home but Hillel should be like according to their mission the center of Jewish life on campus right it's a place where every Jewish student can feel like they belong right and and you meet every student where they're at right that's in a perfect world, but it takes a lot of work to actually meet that mission, to, to, to work towards that mission. And so how can we say that we're accomplishing that when a big chunk of the student body does not feel like that they belong, right? Because they feel that the Hillel is too orthodox or too Ashkenazi, right? And so me kind of, you know, hitting the ground running at that Hillel allowed, it, it allowed me to again, kind of be innovative with the students and with my colleagues and figure out, okay, what, how do we create a more inclusive, a bigger tent here at Hillel? And how do we create a space that speaks to and affirms the identities and creates not only a level of comfort, but confidence for Bukharian Jewish students? And so it began with having one-on-ones, having conversations with the students I'm curious to know, and I really want to unfold what that was like for you, having not really grown up in that like 
queen space, what that was like to then be faced with like a younger version of yourself or like what you would have or potentially could have been if you had actually grown up in these. You know what, Sharon? It actually ended up being, again, a string. It ended up being an extra tool in my toolbox. Why? Because here is this guy, me, who is, you know, he's Bukharian and who uh, exudes this pride, which actually made a lot of the students be like, this is really weird. Like, if you're not from here, you definitely don't look like a New Yorker. Not just a Bukhari, just you're, you're like, you're this weird Northwesterner. You dress funky. You have your weird hats that you wear and da, da, da. And you're deeply connected to culture and, and to your identity. And in ways I've never heard of, like being connected to Judeo-Persian literature, right? And to the tradition, the literary tradition of our community or to the, the rich history of, you know, us creating the Bukharian Quarter in Jerusalem or, you know, other things. So it's, it's a pride that they didn't see before because it's not for them, for many of them, pride was like, you have to be in your face, right? Gaudy, ostentatious, yeah. whatever, you know, insert whatever uh, stereotypes folks might have about us. And uh, which then actually might turn some Bukharian, young Bukharians off. Right, especially as they're entering college now and are trying to kind of carve out their own identity. So here they see this person who is deeply connected, but is also, on the one hand, deeply kind of Bukharian, but on the other hand, is didn't grow up in the community. And it could either it could go both ways. One one could think. On the one hand, it could make them, you know, it can make students on campus feel like um, I don't trust this person. Right? Maybe it could go this way, but it never. It went the exact opposite way for me, and I was so happy. And and it's. It's because I was just, I think when you're authentically you, when you're genuinely yourself, people, it resonates with people. Just like this podcast is authentically, you know, book AF, you are being genuinely who you are. And no one can argue that. That authenticity, that's your, that's your story. So I was just me, this quirky guy from Seattle who did not grow up in the community. And so in many ways was wanting to hear from them. Like, I was like, tell me. I, I, I know very little, right? And so there's that humility of like, I want to hear from you. There was also, the other thing that worked for me in my favor was they realized I wasn't going to judge them because I'm not from the community. I didn't grow up here. And I also actually don't even live here. At the end of the day, I go back to the Bronx or then later on to Harlem and Washington Heights. I'm not even going to be here, you know? So they were able to share things with me. Like the and ultimate safe space, you know what 100%. I mean? hundred yeah. percent. It was, it was something that, and I did, and I did not take that lightly. I took that with so much honor and, and kavana in Hebrew, in, in intention and, and, and gratitude that they were able to open up like that. But on, but on the flip side, they also knew they are speaking to the Bukharian guy. They are speaking to someone who uh, will get certain things and will get norms and expectations and inside jokes and um, idioms, whether in Bukhari or in Russian. And so that liminality, again, back to the liminality, allowed me to actually kind of, it was the best of all worlds, right? It allowed me to actually be that mentor for them, that uh, educator, that friend, uh, all of those hats I was able to wear as I was learning about their stories, their struggles, their aspirations, the things that give them joy, all of that. Um, I was learning from them and not telling them. And that was really, I think, refreshing for many of them because at the end of the day, this wasn't about Ruben deciding what he thinks is a Bukharan Jewish life should look like. It's me kind of being, 
I don't want to say an ethnographer. It's a stupid term because I'm not like documenting a community. No, this is this is real for me. But it's me really being, I don't know, like a social worker almost, like just yeah. listening and and from those stories and those experiences, then having us collectively uh, build the environment we want to see. So then what started happening is a lot of these students, it's not a surprise, they became the student leaders. They became the Bukharan Jewish student leaders on campus. They became the founders of the Bukharan Cultural Club, which is a club we were able to build on campus. They then became, they then assumed positions, uh, leadership positions at Hillel at large, the Hillel student board, right? Or other student government positions on campus, right? They then collaborated with other Jewish student leaders and non-Jewish student leaders, right? We would have programs, well, ah, see now, I don't want to get too much into the details because then I can speak forever about it. But st staying at that balcony view, I would say, yeah, it all began with these conversations. It all became began with being authentic, being genuine, letting your guard down and creating an environment where you can have honest conversations. But without it being like, oh, we're sitting down now, we're having a deep conversation. Right. You have to just you have to genuinely build these relationships over time. And then those relationships led to students becoming, like I said, student leaders and also becoming more comfortable with the Hillel space, like spending time there, chilling there, doing their homework there, right? Interacting with other, uh, with other students, with the staff. And then from that, we were then able to very genuinely and organically build the kinds of programs and a kind of community building opportunities that spoke to Bukharian students that made them feel seen, but that also allowed other students to connect to the richness of our culture. I often use this, the visual of a mosaic, right? A mosaic is this beautiful masterpiece made up of all these different tiles of different shapes and colors and sizes and textures. And each of them is important, right? Each of them has their own reality. If one falls, it's, it's not, it, it, it'll, it, it'll make a difference. And at the same time, we can and should take a step back and appreciate the masterpiece in its entirety. Yes. And it's that duality, it's that simultaneous, a dynamic of each community having its own stories and, and, and individuals, where each child could be an individual, but also being able to see the ways in which we are all connected. That unity and diversity is so important. And when I talk about Bukharian, Bukharian Jewish history, and, and again, connected to um, these events we would have on campus, it would touch upon both of those things. It was just as much about lifting up the stories of our communities as it was about saying, we are part of, we're not a footnote. We're not on the margins. We're part of the Jewish people, right? And if you are a Polish Jew, an Argentine Jew, uh, Iraqi Jew, you can find a way to connect because, and, and by knowing the Bukharan Jewish story, you will have a richer understanding of your story as, as, as a Jew. I look at what is happening at, you know, Queens College right now is just part and parcel of Jewish life on campus. It's not something special, exotic to have Mizrahi programming. And that is, that gives me a deep, you know, sense of pride and, and joy. I think that what's beautiful about that entire experience is that in order to reach that kind of higher self and higher understanding of one's identity and one's role within a community, but also the role of the community within the entire macrocosm is that it all starts with letting the guard down and just being entirely yourself and having those difficult and often really intimate conversations where you're faced with not only your own 
predisposed notions about what you're meant to be like or what your community means. And you genuinely just talk about how that makes you feel. And I feel like that's why your presence in that space was really pertinent because you served as kind of that catalyst that was really necessary in order to facilitate that kind of like rawness. You know what I mean? Like without that person who's like, distant enough, different enough to really show you that like, huh, maybe things can be different. And maybe I can embody my Baharian identity in a different way in which I'm not kind of promoting the same stereotypes in which I'm not just like feeding into the same obnoxious or like ostentatious self. And rather actually taking my Baharian identity for what it is, as opposed to this like cultural dynamic that's been created now that we've transitioned into like this weird Baharian American lifestyle, actually reflecting on like the history and our place in Central Asia, our, in the importance of what we, as like, j just the importance of our place in history, our importance of like yeah. the, the- And how we've, yeah, how we've contributed to exactly. broader Jewish history, broader Central Asian history and culture. Right. And that's exactly what happened here. Right, we it started with these one-on-ones, and it started with an exploration uh, with the students of of what what does Bukhariness mean for them and to them, without all the stereotypes and and preconceived notions for them. And what do they want? What are their aspirations in their communities in the world, right? And um, and within that, then my job was also then to just expose them to maybe other facets of our history and culture that they might not have known that will just deepen and broaden their horizons. But, then, but ultimately, Sharon, it's up to, it, it was then up to each individual to pick and choose what felt right for them. Yeah. And that's the other thing. I think the other beautiful thing is we created a space because it wasn't in a synagogue. It wasn't in, you know, in, a, in the community. It was at Hillel somewhere a little bit different. We created a space where students could make meaning of their identities on their own terms. Right, and, and that's really liberating and empowering to have a place where you can do that, where you can kind of carve out your own sense of self. Obviously, look, we don't live in a vacuum. They would then be going home to the families and to expectations, but still there was that greater confidence they had in, in how they made meaning of their Bukharian identity because they saw me as, as a person like that who created his own sense of Bukharian self and was really comfortable and confident and happy with it and was joyfully sharing it with the world right and then when you have that empowerment you are then you are then empowered to show up for others and to build community to plan programs and to do the hard work i mean these students did such hard work and volunteered their time to make sure that other bukharian students felt comfortable comfortable and safe to make sure that other just uh, that, that the student body knew who they are, put Bukharians on the map and, and have that mutual understanding and respect. All of that could only happen, right? That leadership could only happen when you, yeah, when you start from the eye. And just connected to that, what I'll say in one breath is I would say that was very similar. Uh, that model is very similar to my work with the Sephardic Mizrahi Q Network, SMQ1, which is uh, truly, I mean, I can, I can say this with confidence. Hopefully it doesn't sound braggadocious. I mean, we truly are, um, a one-of-a-kind movement. I was just going to ask you, actually, obviously it's like very clear that your passion for community building and passion for community outreach is deeply rooted with your relationship with yourself. And obviously that comfort, the level of comfort that you are with 
your own identity in order to share that with other people and kind of give people that positive uh, push that they need in order to really claim every single part of themselves, including their queerness. And I think that I was actually, I'm, I'm curious to know if your time working, at which point, I guess, was it that you knew that creating SMQN was something that was like in, in the book for you? You were like, I need to do this. Like at what point were you like, I'm going to do this because it's a, it's a huge step in order to create the safe space, especially for such culturally unique communities like the Sephardic and the Mizrahi communities where that kind of bare authenticity is sometimes met with kind of like a cringe or like a negative connotation. Pushback or yeah, um, yeah. I think that's a great question. And I actually think this is a, me addressing this question is a nice way for us to, um, to kind of wrap up because it'll take it'll allow me to say something at the end that I think is a um, a good kind of like message for the future. So my so the 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 origin story of SMQN, uh, I mean, it very much begins with again a gap, right? It began with a question, and I think a lot of community work, especially in the realm of social innovation entrepreneurship, it, it, it begins with a question, with seeing a gap and being like, what do we do about it? And the question that we asked ourselves, and again, I'm going to use the collective we, because from the beginning, this was um, a collaborative effort. All community work is collaborative. You might have somebody who becomes a little bit more of the face of it, but in the but from the beginning, uh, good community work is communal, right? It's not the Ruben show. So I, um, I was, I remember I was having Shabbat dinner with uh, uh, some of my friends um, in, and I, and I would, I, I love to host a, a Shabbat and, and, and Jewish ritual is very important to me and, um, and Jewish spirituality is, 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 uh, is very important to me. I'm, uh, I identify as Jewish on many levels, culturally, ethnically, but also religiously and spiritually. And um, that's just for me. So uh, we would have, I, I remember we had the Shabbat dinner and there were a couple of people around the table who were my friends. One was uh, a Kafkazi Jew. Another one was um, uh, uh, Iranian Jew. And another one was uh, Iraqi and uh, half Iraqi, half Yemeni. And I might actually be combining like two Shabbats into one, but again, memory, you know, this is what it does to us. But essentially we, and, we, and we're all queer, we're all LGBTQ plus. And, uh, so, and we essentially just asked ourselves, is there a space that exists, a, like a physical space, a center, an environment in which we as folks at the intersection of LGBTQ plus and Sephardic and Mizrahi identities, is there a space that exists in which we can bring all these parts of our identities and feel comfortable, feel safe and feel prideful in doing that? Does such a space exist where we can show up as our full selves? Pretty simple question, right? What we realized is not really, right? And uh, that was, you know, we kind of always knew that, but when you kind of say it out loud, it's really sobering. We realized that being at the crossroads of these identities put us, actually I'm gonna use this word again, in this in-between space, in this liminal state, neither here nor there. On the one hand, there are you know, incredible, robust, 
Jewish organizations, LGBTQ plus Jewish organizations in New York, right? And I don't, I don't want to take anything away from them. I have friends and colleagues that work for them. On the other hand, though, it just a reality, especially when we were speaking about this back, you know, five years ago, it was a reality that they didn't always, at best, I'm trying to say that they didn't always speak to our needs or to our stories or experiences as non-Ashkenazi, non-third generation American Jews. And so what would happen is for many of us, as we started coming out and deeply wanting to bridge our Jewishness and our queerness, we sought out those spaces and we're desperate to have that sense of community where at least some parts of our identities, you know, we could kind of mend and combine and not compartmentalize. But we quickly realized many of us that another important part of who we are is not really showing up here, right? In many ways, whether it's not showing up in terms of programs, like the programs don't speak to some of our Jewish cultural experiences, whether it's not showing up in terms of the leadership, like you look at the, the, you know, the executive board or the executive director, and nobody looks like you or has your experiences, or yeah. whether it's not showing up just in the demographics. I'm not seeing, and I'm not saying I need to see everybody being Mizrahi, but like I thrive in, in, in uh, environments that are truly diverse, right? And that they're Jewishly diverse. So when you see on all those levels, your story not really being represented, then you kind of, you adapt, right? I wasn't like saying, oh, woe is me. Da, da, da. I was just saying, okay, well, I guess that part of my identity, I just kind of, I'm going to check at the door, right? And that's what happens. But that's exhausting. <laughs> that gets really tiresome. And also you start feeling, well, okay, but at least the Jewish and queer part, like those things are in one space and who am I to complain or who am I? So again, you make yourself smaller until you realize, wait a minute, it doesn't have to be this way. We can have love and respect for these spaces that have existed and push the needle forward, right? Move the needle forward. It's okay to say that there are still certain things that need to be addressed. It's okay to say that there are certain issues, just like in the Bohar community, it can come from a place of love. What you're doing comes from a place of love, not from a place of, uh, and it could be frustration, that's also part of love, but it's not from a place of, need to, of wanting to bring anybody down or anything down. It's actually us wanting to move, as I said, the needle forward. And so at a certain point, I think when I was a bit more confident with, uh, you know, I was already in New York for a while, I had already a network. I was seeking out Mizrahi queer friends because I wanted people who understood me, understood yeah. the kind of the beauty and the struggle of, you know, holding all these different parts of, of your identity. At that point, I was also, you know, pretty confident in my work in the Jewish nonprofit world as a Jewish communal leader and professional. And so I felt like I had an opportunity then and I had some of that, the privilege or the power to ask this question and start doing something about it. And so we asked this question together and, and, and the answer was, yeah, nothing really like this exists. So then putting on the social innovation hat, I said, okay, so let's do something about it. As corny as it sounds like, let's see the change, like let's be the change we wanna see, right? But I really meant it. And I felt like we were ripe, the moment was ripe with opportunity and possibility. And so we essentially articulated, identified this urgent need, right? For a space that really was not, there and we understood that in building the space whatever it's going to be not only is it going to empower an important segment of the jewish community right because again more broadly this is a jewish issue 
It's not just a Sephardic or queer or Mizrahi. It's an issue of how are we, how inclusive are we as a Jewish people? What kind of tent are we setting up for all of us, right? And if there are segments of that tent that are uh, segments of that population that are not welcome to the tent, whether they are, I don't know, um, let's say Jews of color or queer Jews or the intersection of those or or feminist Jews or again, if there's then we're actually doing a disservice to the Jewish collective, to Am Yisrael, to the Jewish people. And I always say that, that way to folks who might be a little bit more, you know, conservative. I say at the end of the day, if you're really concerned about Jewish continuity, right, and 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 not wanting assimilation, well, then you should be invested in this. You should give money to SMQN because these are yes. people who otherwise would actually just piece out of Jewishness, right? And they and so we're actually, you know, this is a lifeline for them. This is a lifeline for their Jewish identity because they have suffered already so much and you know trauma and toxicity and all this stuff that many of them have already pieced out and we're and and smqn for example for in uh, for the purpose of our discussion became that lifeline it became an opportunity for them to to show up as they as themselves show up with all the different tiles of their mosaic and not need to check anything in the door not need to compartmentalize something to be able to bring the multi-layeredness even those parts that maybe at times were in tension with each other and just be, right? And be with others like that. Because at times, even if you can tell yourself logically, okay, well, statistically, I must, I, I know I might, I must not be the only queer Bukharian Jew, but if you don't see it, just like if you don't see a progressive Bukharian Jew, or if you don't see a re reform Bukharian Jew, they exist, for example, also. Like I'm just trying to uh, pick things that that maybe are or 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 intersections of identities in our community that are. Uh, very much, you know, kind of put to the margins. If you don't see that, then it, it's going to feel really lonely. And when you feel lonely, you then feel disempowered. And when you feel disempowered, you then feel depressed. And when you feel, I mean, it's then just, it's an awful cycle. And it's, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good for you. And then it affects again, how you show up in the world. And so it was important. This was a space in which folks can, first of all, like I said, just come as they are but also see others with, who've had similar experiences and see themselves in others and really feel like they're not alone. And what happens then, Sharon, is, and this is what happened with our community as we organically built it, as we started having Shabbat gatherings, Shabbat dinners in people's homes, it was very important for it to still feel intimate, but it was very important for us to also connect to something deeply, not just Jewish, but deeply Mizrahi Jewish. Shabbat for so many of us, regardless of our level of observance. Shabbat was, I have a colleague who says this um, in, uh, in California, he's an Iranian Jew, he says, for Persian Jews, Shabbat was our Torah, right? That is where you come together and where regardless of what you're doing later, if you're watching TV, if you drove to your grandma's house, whatever, you are there together and you are connecting to something very ancient, which is the Sabbath, but also you're connecting to your distinct Jewishness through the food, through the melodies, through the language, through the just the cultural dynamics in that space. But for many of us, when we came out, we were now robbed of them. We weren't able to access it in the same way. And that, by the way, I forgot the other part of the challenge. I said, you know, you have Ashkenormativity in, uh, which is sort of, you know, Ashkenormativity, for those who might know, it's this new, jar it's a recent jargony term, but it really speaks to something. It actually owes itself to the term heteronormativity, which is the assumption that, uh, the, uh, that if you, you know, the, 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 the default identity, just the assumption that you meet someone, they must be straight. Or cis normativity, the assumption the person must be um, 
must be uh, cisgender. So this is uh, kind of taking that same concept, Ashkenormativity is the assumption that Jewish identity is by default Ashkenazi, or that that is the normative, the, um, the, 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 the typical identity, or we can even read in there the preferred identity, right? And so pushing back against that, which is I think very, very important, and when we push back against that, by the way, another parenthesis, it doesn't mean that we are belittling or that we're disparaging the beautiful, dynamic, diverse, eclectic stories of Ashkenazi siblings, right? Uh, talking about Ashkenormativity doesn't take away from, from the Ashkenazi world or worlds, I should really say, because there is a complexity within that. All it's saying is that we can widen the circle, that there is more to the story. So folks shouldn't feel threatened. Ashkenazi folks should not feel threatened by by talking about normativity. It's not taking away from that. Just like folks shouldn't be threatened by feminism, right? Or they shouldn't be threatened by queer liberation. It's not taking, it's actually just adding. It's adding to, to, uh, uh, to the conversation, not taking anything away. And so a big part of our organization was, you know, was kind of combating, uh, has been combating uh, normativity or pushing back against that. But I also want to say another thing because there's enough obligation or blame to go around. Just like I said, there's normativity in, uh, in um, you know, um, more deeply entrenched uh, American Jewish organizations, which by the way, is changing every day and, and the needle is being moved forward. And I'm so proud of my colleagues and my Ashkenazi uh, Jewish colleagues who are helping you know, with that, that, that work. But also I have to be honest, on that side, we felt like some of our Bukhariness or Mizrakiness we could bring in. But I also have to name, you know, call it what it is. In the Bukharian community, or more broadly, like in Mizrahi communities, we also were checking things at the door. In these spaces, yes, the richness of our culture was front and center. But many of us felt like we could not bring in our LGBTQ plus identity. Even if our, you know, maybe family knew, okay, well, just don't talk about it right now. Or don't bring your queer friend or your partner. Well, then we're not fully being welcomed anymore, right? It doesn't have to be that we're completely, you know, shunned from the community. When I say that, that, that parts of the, of the culture were then taken from us or inaccessible or robbed from us, this is what I mean. I mean, we're not able to fully engage with it. And that should be a, just, that's a human right to be able to fully engage with what you want to engage with. And so uh, all of that connected back to Shabbat. That's why it was so important for us to gather around the Shabbat table because we were able to reclaim something that, was, that meant a lot to many of us that, 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 that was deeply salient, right? Gathering around the Shabbat table as a Moroccan Jew, as an Iraqi Jew, as a Yemenite, as a Bukharian Jew, and the sights, the smells, the sounds of that, that we deeply uh, connected with when we were younger and that we now yearn for, but we really couldn't access because parts of us were no longer welcome. Well, in this space, we were unapologetically reclaiming all of that and having these Mizrahi Sfaradi Shabbat dinners with the food, with the singing, with the loud talking, you know, just squeezing together in these tiny apartments, right? It was pop-ups that was happening in the homes of different community members, right? And so in doing that, we, again, what did we do? We started from the eye. We created a space where each person could feel seen and heard and empowered and share their story and hear other stories and commiserate and take pride, but also connect on the painful moments and do it as a community. So it went from the I to the we. And so then when you feel that sense of empowerment, you again then show up in the broader world with more confidence. You have a deeper sense of pride in your Jewishness now, 
right? You have, a, you have a deeper connection to your particular heritage. And you then, many of these folks then would tell me, Ruben, I want to host the next Shabbat dinner. Can I do it? And I would, you know, also right now, I would have like a list of, a wait list of like for seven months of folks <laughs> who said, uh, you know, and I'd be like, ah, it's a good problem to have. So then we started having multiple Shabbat gatherings, Shabbat lunches and Havdalah gatherings. Oh, my throat is now, I'm getting too excited here. We're almost done. This is my throat telling me, wrap it up, Ruben. But, but it's this, again, it's this model of starting from the individual, really zooming in. And then from there, creating an environment where folks feel empowered to then give back, give of themselves to others. And you're really then building not just a community, you're building a movement. And that's really what we have, what we have built. I like to call what we have done uh, a movement. It's a movement that, again, first and foremost, inspires and empowers folks at this crossroads, who, by the way, are not, even though it might seem like, you know, a niche community, and in many ways it is a minority within a minority, within a minority, but it still is an, a, a big part of the Jewish world. Queer, Sephardic, and Israeli Jews, we exist, we are here, we have stories to tell, and we want to tell them, but we first want to feel confident and, and safe and empowered ourselves to tell those stories. Once we feel that, then we have we can build this community that serves not just LGBTQ, Sephardic, and Israeli Jews, but it adds to the Jewish world and to the broader Middle Eastern MENA, Middle Eastern North African world, right? There are these points of intersection then that allow us to then show up in these broader spaces. And SMQN does that. SMQN hosts events with allies, with our ally um, siblings and parents and intercultural um, events. Because we actually, again, that thing that we might have thought for the longest time is to our detriment being part of a North African or West Asian or Central Asian and Jewish community and immigrant community and LGBTQ, all those things that we might've thought, ah, they make us less than. I want and this is what I wanna end with. No, it makes us that much more, it gives us that much more, uh, that many more tools and that much more beautiful tiles <laughs> to our mosaic that we can offer to the world. I really, really encourage anybody who's listening who feels like I don't, people don't get me or like there's too much to explain or like all these identities layered on top of each other is just complicated. Look, you, you, everybody should figure out what it means to them. But if you think that this is actually something that is, that is limiting you, that is constricting you, I encourage you to flip it on its head and to think of it in another way, to think of it of like, you know what? I'm not Becky McDonald. And that makes me that much more incredible because it will allow because it allows me to connect to more people. It allows me to have empathy. It allows me to build those bridges. It allows me to be here and there, and to traverse these different ter this terrain. And so I love that I am Bukharian. I love that I'm an immigrant. I love that I'm Jewish. I love that I'm Mizrahi Sfardi. I love that I am queer. I love that I am an American. I love all of these things about me because they allow me to connect with the world that much more deeply. And, and so the blessing I want to give, I don't know, now I'm going to be very behind here. I'm going to give a beracha. I'm going to give a blessing. I really bless, you know, everybody who's listening. I, I bless that you, that you continue walking on that journey of embracing all of the parts of who you are, even those that might seem like they're in contradiction or in tension with one another. We are a hot, beautiful mess. And, and that mess can, again, live in that mosaic. 
right? And I guess I bless you all with the continued uh, energy because it is hard work and energy to hold all of those parts simultaneously because that beautiful mess, that's your story and that's your offering to the world. The more we can tap into that each of us, the more not, not only will we have a deeper sense of self and happiness for ourselves, but the more we can share with the world and the more we can show up for others. First of all, I'm crying, okay? There are tears, there are tears in my eyes and my nose is full of boogers. I just wanna let you know, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Oh my God, no, I'm... I am truly so, so happy that, you know, first and foremost, I'm, I think that we, I need to underline the fact that I, first did not even know that a, a safe space for queer individuals within the Sephardic and Mizrahi communities has exist, had existed. Okay, me, just like a regular, regular, you know, girl from Queens, I had no idea. Okay, I had no idea that this existed. I was not aware of this. I was similarly kind of brought up in that space where queerness was something that you whisper about and that you just hush and like kind of leave at the door as you were saying. And I think that recently it was within the past year that I've been working on Chai that I found you and your, your page and your movement. And I absolutely fell in love with it because generally it is kind of the narrative that's promoted that there are aspects of our individual identities that cannot coexist, right? There are aspects that are just mutually exclusive when it comes to our Baharian identity, our religious identities, and what it is that we truly feel about ourselves. And that is constantly the push and pull of which one do we want to side with? Do we want to side with the Baharian and traditional sense, or do we want to side with who we are? And a lot of the time, the main question that rose in my mind is why does it have to be mutually exclusive? Why can't my identities coexist and participate in that intersectional work, as you were saying? And I think that it's so important that individuals who are in the younger generations, particularly individuals who are in the younger generations, to know and to be exposed to these types of movements ASAP, like as soon as possible, because I feel that it's a disservice to myself that I wasn't aware that a a space like SMQN existed, that I couldn't share it with queer friends, that I couldn't share that the, the beautiful story of its origin and of its you know founding creators. It's, it's a shame that we are not promoting this space as an outlet and a platform for our queer members of our community to feel safe and heard. And I think that the main thing, and I, I even I remember when we were talking in our intro conversations, I said, like, I absolutely love the work that you're doing, but I want to underline the work that you're doing with SMQN, and I want to use this as a platform to share this message and to promote the importance of its movement, because without this safe space, there are so many people, there are so many people that are my age or older, who are consistently trying to belittle, to minimize that part of their identities, to hide it, to, to pray and hope that it just ceases to exist, but it should not be that way, right? And it's the fact that you're able to facilitate that space for individuals to feel the warm embrace of their culture and their personal identity, to understand that they are not mutually exclusive, that they can be one. And I urge anybody, first of all, check the bio. Okay. There's going to be so much information about SMQN. Check the bio, reach out to it. I'm 
I am so happy that you took the time to come on here and to talk about all of this because I think that I, every single conversation that I have with every guest so far, and I'm sure that this will continue every episode that I plan on putting out, at the close of it, I always think to myself, I wish I heard this when I was 18. I wish that I knew this person when I was going through that time in my life where I was trying to solidify my identity and like who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's so important, the work that we're doing. And I'm so glad that I had this opportunity to give you the mic and just let you run with it and just vent because this is what the space is for. It's for being unapologetically and entirely your authentic self, because that, as you said, is what makes us so beautiful and is what makes our part in the unit of the mosaic so important because without us the mosaic wouldn't be as beautiful and it wouldn't be as amazing and without people like yourself without community leaders and without community organizers those mosaic pieces would never be able to be as bright as they are so i just want to say thank you so much for all of the work that you do and thank you for coming on here i am honored and blessed beyond beyond imagination that you are here and that you took the time to do this Sharon, thank you. And you know what? You might cut it off here, but this is going to be a boring goodbye. I have to say something to what you said, because what you just said is beautiful. I first want to say thank you for providing that platform. I so appreciate you honestly saying, hey, I, you know, I might have, I have the ability to do something about this with a lot of hard work and bravery. And you're really putting yourself out there. But for example, like in this, in this uh, situation, as a straight woman to to have to welcome somebody like me, right? And and to and to create that platform and for us to have this like allyship connection. I applaud you and I thank you for using that platform, right? And for providing a space for the broader kind of world to not just to hear my story, but the work that I'm doing with other amazing folks, including the Sephardic Mizrahi Q Network. And I'm I so agree with you that raising awareness about it is is very important because at the end of the day. Everything that I'm sharing right now, it's not for somebody to just be like, hey, I don't need applause. I don't need pats on the back. This is all worth it. If somebody who listens says, oh my gosh, I could really benefit from this community. So please, and, and so that pragmatic goal that you had, that strategic goal, I appreciate it, right? We, we are people on a mission here. So thank you for being strategic like that and for saying, Ruben, I want to elevate this story so that other folks can know about it because I didn't know about it and... That's a shame. So uh, that whole idea of creating a world that you didn't see, right? Creating a better tomorrow. I love it. And I thank you for that. And a lot of actually, you know, what I've done in my life has been informed by that question of like, what is the world I want to see that I didn't see or I didn't have, right? I didn't have a queer Bukharian mentor or, um, or really... I'm Bukharian mentor in general. Yeah, kind of a lot of my, I mean, there, there were folks who I respected and, you know, including my, you know, my amazing grandfather, may he rest in peace. But I'm saying someone who I could really just like open up to, right? And talk about things that maybe I was ashamed to talk about. Like, and so I thought like, how would it look like for, like for someone to have that, which I didn't have. On the one hand, you could either be really salty and be like, well, you know what? If I didn't have that, screw everybody. Yeah. Or you can actually say, you know what? That which I didn't have, I want to ensure that the next generation has access to that. 
in my own limited way. I mean, I'm just like a, you know, a tiny little drop in the bucket. I also want to be very clear that there are other folks doing incredible work and you're interviewing many of them. So let's also give all of them uh, you know, applause. Those who are going to be, have been on the show, will be on the show, are not going to be on the show, that I am part of that story. And I'm also standing on the shoulders of giants. It would be very inauthentic and not Bukharan of me not to recognize the elders and the, and the people that have come before me. So I want to really bring everybody, like, I want to bring all those folks in this space right now as we're kind of concluding and giving our gratitude. And I would say the final thing connected to, and this is promise will really be the final thing connected to what you were saying of the, you know, not needing to forego one part of your identity for the other, not seeing it as mutually exclusive, not seeing it as a zero-sum game. There's actually something also deeply Jewish about that. And again, the educator in me can't help but, but mention that. There's this other concept in, uh, this also shows up in the, in the oral tradition in Judaism, this idea of elu ve'elu, which means this and this, or these and these. Uh, there's a whole story. I mean, the way that it shows up in the, in the Talmud is there are, there's like differing opinions between two schools of thought and they can't come to like an agreement. And so as the story goes, they go, you know, they take the, the question to the heavens and the divine says, these are both truths, right? You can hold multiple truths. You can hold multiple realities. Elo ve elo. I love that there's, that that's in our tradition, right? We don't have just, again, also the joke two Jews, three opinions or whatever. <laughs> Part of our tradition is that complexity. It's very Jewish. It's not something new age or whatever. It, it, you know, sometimes if, if folks of the older generation want to say, oh, you're being whatever, you know, uh, hippie or whatever word they want, a negative word they want to use uh, on us. I actually am a proud, you know, a progressive Bukharian yeah. Jew, but I'm saying it's not even about that. It's actually, it's actually very deeply Jewish to hold multiple truths multiple realities, multiple parts of who you are. Elo ve elo. And so for me, when I started doing that, you know, for myself and really bringing those values, those Jewish values into my work, it, it informed then everything that I did beyond SMQ and as well. I've over the last, you know, the second big part of, or the second half of our conversation, I spoke mainly through the SMQN lens, but it really is through any lens, this idea, this desire, this one, this yearning to bring this and that and that part of us, the elo ve elo, have it come together and celebrate it in its, in its totality. And so, you know, I think, again, I, I, first of all, I think all, again, all the people that have come before me and all of the spaces that have allowed me in my crazy way to move the needle forward a little bit and to bring some of these values that I think are, are really important to bigger organizations. So places like QC Hillel, like the American Sephardi Federation, Muslim Jewish Solidarity Committee, which we haven't even spoken about, but that's okay. But I want to finish by saying thank you, Sharon. Thank you. I've said this before. You are my soul sister. You are doing the important hard work that is, you know, every, anybody who's listening, please know, put, to, put together a podcast. It is not, you're not just like pressing record and whatever. There's so much that goes into it. Again, we all can have an idea, but to transform something from an idea to action, very few people do that. And those are people who I think do have that strong sense of self, have done the hard work of trying to understand the different parts of who they are. And it's a labor of love. You are offering a gift to us, to the world. This is activism. This is community work. This is leadership. So thank you. And I wish you so much more success with this wonderful endeavor and this great addition to our collective Bukharian Jewish story. <laughs>